I, my, my uh, critique of uh, the United States, unlike Europe and other, other uh, countries, is that everybody wants to think that they're middle class somehow, the great middle class, which means it fuzzes out that whole issue and we tend to, I think, conflate race and class. Hi, and welcome to Solar for All, a podcast at the intersection of clean energy and issues of race, class, justice, and equity. I'm your host, Jeff Greenfield. And uh, all the show notes and other resources, including show notes from this show, are available at solarforall.show, and that's uh, S-H-O-W. With me today is our guest, Ralph Jacobson. Ralph is the founder and, depending on who you ask, chief impact officer, chief innovation officer, or chief Jedi officer of uh, IPS, and uh, he started IPS... uh, 30 years ago. So he is definitely a solar pioneer and one of the early movers that's still around doing good work. Uh, IPS is headquartered in St. Paul, uh, the greater St. Paul area and Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And uh, Ralph went to the University of Minnesota where he studied material science in the 80s when solar PV was just coming online. Um, And uh, without further ado, Let's talk about some of the things that you've learned over your 30 years of doing solar and especially at the subject matter that we're talking about here uh, at inclusion, equity, diversity, justice, um, how some of your experiences over the 30 years and what you're up to right now um, are, are kind of overlapping in that space. Thanks for coming on the show, Ralph. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Jeff. Uh, just I'm delighted to get a chance to talk about the things that I'm passionate about. So um, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to have a conversation with you today. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what is your title? I, I looked at LinkedIn and looked at your email, and 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 you know we were just talking about Chief Jedi Officer. Uh, uh, do you do you actually have a business card that says something, or do you go by the the title de jour? You know, my title is the Chief Jedi Officer, and I think it's because the uh, fellow owners of the business really feel that um, that I I can do more good uh, in that arena uh, than I can in just, uh, you know, corporate innovation, those sorts of things. Because, you know, here we are in the, I am anyways, in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul. This is where George, George Floyd was murdered last year. We are at the epicenter of this wave of recognition that has gone actually all around the world that we've got to clean it up in terms of the race issue. And so um, I feel like my, my life has given me uh, at various stages of my life has given me, let's say the, the tools or, or at least the interest and awareness to um, feel like I can contribute something, I guess, let's call it, let's call it the Jedi arena because it's a good um, shorthand way of referring to it. Now, I, I should say that my business card does say Jedi, Chief Jedi Officer, but we have to be careful not to spell it out that way, because if you do, it says Chief Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And of course, many people would get stuck on Chief Justice. What court do you, you know, do you work in? You know, so we have to keep it to Jedi when I put a chief before it. But it is a C-level position in the company. As the founder, I sold the business uh, about a year and a half ago. And so I have a minority uh, position in the business and it's the one that has the most value for people because everybody else in the business is involved more in production. 
as I'm the old geezer, it is a, a, a place in my career where I, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, have the uh, other owners of the business and the staff um, believe that where my passion is, is where I'm going to contribute the most value. Yeah, well, it seems like passion is contagious. And, um, you know, many times folks after 30 years of toil and, you know, uh, riding the solar coaster uh, might go find a beach to sit on somewhere. But sounds like you're still doing what you care a lot about. Well, uh, you, you asked about some um, like background. And, you know, having started a, a business in a technical field, right, after getting an engineering degree at the university, you know, five, ten years ago, I, I, you know, I was having fun, you know, started out as two guys in a truck and then a few other people and then a salesperson and we sort of grew organically. Uh, but then I realized uh, maybe 10 years ago that, you know, that's a bunch of white guys. I have surrounded myself with a bunch of white guys, which uh, I might have not noticed that, but I grew up in a black neighborhood and I started to wonder, gee, where are the black people? Uh, my grandfather grew up on an Indian reservation, and, I, and uh, I've always, you know, had an awareness. And at some point, I just started to think, well, my business should reflect a more, let's say, wide a wider variety of people, women, Native Americans, black people, Latin Latinx. And then, of course, you, you kind of you, you have that flash of realization, and then you go, well, okay, where do I turn? You know, who's putting out uh, graduates? Uh, you know, if I've hired people through kind of word of mouth mostly. And um, word of mouth, I guess, in the solar community 10 years ago didn't really uh, extend very deep into the black community uh, or, or Native American uh, communities. And so as far as uh, figuring out about people in the black community, so Jamez Staples uh, Renewable Energy Partners on the north side of Minneapolis um, had started coming to the uh, Minnesota Solar Energy Industry Association meetings. Being from the north side of Minneapolis, where I uh, part of my growing up was, I, I kind of felt like, hey, here's a fellow traveler. So I asked him if he could um, help me find people um, from that community that would be, you know, interested for uh, first of all, and willing to, uh, let's say, go through on-the-job training, you know, OSHA. Uh, trainings, you know, the kind of things you have to do in order to get some uh, credentials. So um, we, we started down that road. And, and I would say that um, although it was personally a good experience for me because uh, I, <laughs> I kind of got to surround myself with the crew of, of black workers, uh, I think they were, they were not graduates of solar training programs. And so we were, they were learning. We poured a lot of concrete, frankly, for ground mount systems. And then some of them became more involved in, uh, uh, let's say, rooftop systems. And that was pretty organic. But, you know, one of the things that we found was that there was a big culture clash. And that was something that I, um, I'm still kind of reeling from uh, because uh, it just, in terms of insurance requirements, you know, people following the rules, uh, not smoking on the roof and, and those kind of things, I had a hard time um, kind of being, I felt like I was caught between my managers who wanted people to toe the line and my workers who basically said, you know, I'm on a roof. I should be able to smoke a cigarette if I want. You know, if I need to move a couch on the weekend, I should be able to use the company van to move a couch. Although for insurance reasons, uh, they were not supposed to do that. And so I kind of got caught between, on the one hand, the business requirements 
and sort of formal requirements of a business. And as the CEO at that point, uh, the business uh, owner needed to uh, not get too far out of whack with what my HR person was telling me that uh, we needed to toe the line. And so ultimately, we didn't keep any of them. And several of them found uh, pro- found jobs in other um, with other contractors in the industry. And so I, uh, looking back, I kind of feel like that was... Um, Let's say we we provided an entry point into the industry for uh, maybe a dozen people, and then uh, now they all work for other contractors. You know, when you talk, you you mentioned a word in that in, in your introduction, a class, and I think that um, my my analysis of uh, modern American um, classless society is that you could ask the wealthiest person in the United States, Jeff Bezos. So, what class do you belong to, Jeff? Oh, kind of upper middle class. And you could ask the poorest person, the guy sleeping on the sidewalk in downtown St. Paul in the middle of the winter. Oh, what class are you? Oh, lower middle class. I, my my uh, critique of uh, the United States, unlike Europe and other, other uh, countries, is that everybody wants to think that they're middle class somehow, the great middle class, which means it fuzzes out that whole issue. And we tend to, I think, conflate race and class. When you get somebody out of the, you know, the 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 ghetto, really, the North Minneapolis, what what what, you know, serves for a ghetto here in the Twin Cities, anyways, uh, one of the neighborhoods that we might call a ghetto, where somebody from Watts <laughs> um, or Compton, California, might might say, "Geez, that's a middle class neighborhood." If I ever saw one, so it's all in what you compare to. Uh, I think that uh, we conflate those things, and then it gets to be confusing. Uh, and so if I were to do that five-year period over again, I would say that uh, we really need to educate ourselves here in the business on, this, uh, you know, on the part of the staff. That, that's something that I, as the CEO who wanted to lead the staff down that road, needed to do a better job educating people about issues around class so that people didn't confuse you know, behavior of um, black, um, let's say, crew members as being about being black. That's a great point. That's a great point, Ralph. You know, I, I come from also similar to you. Uh, my high school was, you know, was not majority uh, white. It was very diverse. And of the black kids, many of them were from professional upper middle class backgrounds. You know, his, his dad's a professor. Her, her dad is a, a lawyer. But there's also plenty of really poor kids. And there's a huge difference just within, you know, you couldn't stereotype and say the black kids because there is definitely different groups of black kids. And now here I am in Appalachian, Ohio, surrounded by white people. I think Athens County is 99% plus white, but we've got serious class issues and, and serious endemic multi-generational poverty that a lot of people, you know, don't really think about. So it was intentional that that we're focused on issues of class along with, uh, you know, color and background and, and uh, you know, even the immigrant story, you know, is a great part of America um, and has with it a lot of issues and a lot of nuance that, that people will probably uh, be disappointed and frustrated if they don't take into account. Just like sounds like you are in hindsight, looking back at your, your experiment, your early mover experiment and trying to be more inclusive and, and have a more diverse workforce um, would have benefited from you know your 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 hindsight today. 
Actually, another dimension to the that five-year period that I'll, I, I will point out is that um, in 2009, uh, I, when the Department of Labor and Industry uh, declared that um, photovoltaic installation is electrical work, um, basically, I was involved in getting some legislation to help create market and saw you know how helpful the IBEW was. And so I um, decided, okay, well, if I'm going to keep doing uh, photovoltaic installations, I uh, better become an electrical contractor. And so had an electrician on staff um, and, well, we needed to have a master electrician at that point. So I've made arrangements with master electricians to use their license and, and their help. But during that period where I was hiring people out of uh, North Minneapolis to, um, you know, fill out our crew, uh, as, a, as an IBEW signatory, I thought that um, a, a valid pathway for these guys into the uh, solar business was to organize them into the apprenticeship program. And um, so I, I remember one, one job where I had a union organizer sitting in the room with my crew. And uh, he was um, trying to get them interested in, in uh, signing up for the apprenticeship program. And I think that um, to them, it appeared like indentured servitude, which uh, I just said, left, it just created a, a, a sour attitude. Uh, they didn't want to go there. These guys, I could see that they, they, okay, were envisioning being surrounded by 50-year-old white racist electricians for five years, did not look appealing. And so we couldn't get them to bite. I would have loved to have been, um, you know, responsible for organizing some um, black solar workers into the IBEW apprenticeship program and giving them, you know, um, a portal into a career as an electrician. But um, just I could see that there were attitudes on both sides. The uh, the union didn't really want me to be, um, you know, it's like doing an end run around their process. And then they didn't really want to get involved in the union in that way. And so um, I, that was a, a, um, a bitter failure for me. So combining the union membership with, um, you know, having, um, crewing up with people from the black community just didn't pan out. Really, if you look at systemic racism, and I know that's probably a bad word right now. I mean, I see that people who are uh, really trying to deconstruct racism in the United States have gone to other language. But when you look at the systemic aspects, um, I think the, uh, that union experience looked like a significant a lesson in recognizing that there may be hesitations and attitudes on both sides of the equation uh, that one has to deal with. Yeah, yeah. You know, the unions are really changing quickly. As as you know, there's a huge shortage of quote-unquote blue-collar workers. And uh, maybe this has something to do with the class uh, discussion we had earlier and, and perceptions about what is, you know, what success looks like. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, the unions are really starting to up their game in terms of recruiting and and making uh, women and people of color and different backgrounds more, you know, welcome or feel more welcome, genuinely. And um, not everybody, but but plenty of uh, IBW folks I've spoken with will admit that there's a history there that they've got to overcome and some serious challenges. And, and I'm 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 happy that that I'm seeing some progress. Yeah, another issue that I think um, was uh, difficult for our HR people or maybe our managers. 
uh, to deal with. Um, again, I would say this relates more to class than color. Gener definitely, uh, maybe it's all about class, is wealth. That um, I was drawing people who, you know, maybe because of family background, uh, just because of, um, and I'd say that, you know, the long arc of Jim Crow, the impact of Jim Crow, where um, families of color have not been able to um, accumulate wealth to the same extent that, that white families have been able to. When, when hiring somebody who doesn't have a car for a construction job, that just puts an extra burden on, on everybody on the crew. Uh, people have to give rides. And if you have too much of that, you know, you have a lot of uh, the use of Uber and taxis and uh, people showing up late uh, because they, you know, had to, something about their kids that they, that hadn't gotten worked out, um, you know, and, and those kind of things, it, it, it's like any one thing would not be a big deal, but it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Then a lot of those things that I think just go back to stolen wealth, stolen opportunity to uh, generate wealth. They were not coming from a situation where they had the uh, resources, yes, and cushion, you know, to overcome, you know, any one of those uh, problems, lack of a car or, or what have you. And and so it was, yeah, that was another thing that made it hard uh, for the, um, the my managers and, and then the HR person. You know, we've got this myth of, you know, the we're all middle class. Uh, there's a famous quote, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, I think they're talking about, you know, the most Americans think that they're temporarily, what was the word, temporarily inconvenienced millionaires, you know, as a way to explain why a lot of people vote against their 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 class issues is because we've got this great story of you know we're all about to be successful and if I work hard I'll be successful if I have a good idea I'll be successful and to a large extent that is the American dream and that's you know one of the reasons I started a business and was an entrepreneur but many of us after looking hard in the mirror after George Floyd's murder and this big, big awakening that white America and white middle-class America has and, and is still going through, um, my perspective's changed. And I'm really more aware now than I ever was about what I call um, the tailwinds in my life that open doors for me and just make me more likely to be successful. And the headwinds uh, faced by many, many people that work harder than me and are likely smarter than me, um, but because of the color of their skin or the, their background, their childhood uh, experience, don't have you know the same outcomes. And um, it's really turned my own ideas about meritocracy and entrepreneurial, you know, egalitarianism on its head. And I'm I'm much more aware of that. And it's, it sounds like. You're you're pointing out some of this stuff that you know you hire a, a white kid from the suburbs, uh, he's probably going to work out and he's certainly going to have an easier path. If you hire a black kid from northern Minneapolis, um, it's going to be a lot harder for him to be successful for a variety of reasons. Yeah, actually, hire a farm kid. <laughs> Isn't that the wisdom? Hire a farm kid. <laughs> Black or white. We've got a lot of good farm kids. Yeah. And, and I tell you, there's something to be said about the hardworking rural farm worker uh, ethic. I, and I've also been told, don't hire philosophy grads and expect them to be productive up on a hot roof. You know, in, in the solar industry, we've got a lot of tree hugging, you know, idealistic folks attracted to our industry. 
Um, but in general, PhDs don't last long carrying modules up a panel, up a, up a ladder. Well, I, I think that the best uh, placed um, philosophy grads I've seen in the construction industry is um, your finer cabinetry and, and um, trim details. <laughs> Not lugging solar panels yeah, up yeah. Uh, three levels of scaffolding. Well, here we are stereotyping, Ralph. So it's, it's a, it takes a while to, to, to break that habit. And I, I bet you we'll maybe get some phone calls from happy, hardworking philosophy grads that are digging holes with the best of the farm well, boys. Well, and, um, you know, one um, of the things uh, when I used to really love hobnobbing uh, with uh, and, and like riding for an hour or two, you know, job site with, with my black crew because... You know, one of the uh, realities that I understand, I'm given to understand about being black is it's impossible to get away from the race issue. White people, part of white privilege is being able to step away from it. Oh, I want to think about astronomy now. I want to think about, um, you know, coin collecting. Um, you know, all these things we can, um, like, distract ourselves or, or in, inspire ourselves with. And so I enjoyed talking about astronomy and astrology and um, philosophy, you know, with, with my black crew and, um, you know, giving them a chance to step aside from like the, the issues of race. Um, so, so they weren't like having to deal with it, like at least for the day. That's something that I think recognizing that the uh, that a a person is a um, a whole human being, you know, with a whole set of interests. How did you get turned on to this way of thinking, Ralph? I mean, you're you're, I think you'd probably self-identify as not being your average white upper middle class guy, in terms of mindset and perspective. Is there? I mean, you, you mentioned your your parents, and you mentioned your your growing up in a, a you know more diverse area of. Well, uh, boy, uh, get, don't get me started. <laughs> when I was five years old, we were visiting uh, some family down in Arizona. Okay, and I remember uh, being at the Arizona State Fair. This was a formative experience, I think. One of those things that sort of sets your expectation and your direction and your expectation of other people in a direction early in life, right? So um, down there at the Arizona State Fair, five years old, and I was watching a Navajo man do a sand painting, you know, with different colors of sand. And I was fascinated by that. So he was explaining to me what some of the things were that, like, he was explaining about the, uh, the what, what clouds look like when you have the whole horizon available to you, like you do in Arizona and most places. Um, clouds, they, they can take on the look of, like, beings that are coming over the edge of the world. So the, the firebird or, or the... Uh, Thunderbird, actually the Thunderbird. Uh, so he was explaining that um, to me as he as he was, uh, you know, um, parceling out the the sand, and that stuck with me. I mean, just that uh, fifteen minute conversation of watching him, um, and I remember that because um, what it did was it set my expectations about what I would what I could talk about with people, um, like Native American people, Black people, Latino, Latinx, Latina. Um, and the, the range of, um, history, philosophy, and as, as you pointed out, you know, philosophy graduates, well, this guy was definitely a history buff, right? Putting it into his art. And it was a different form of history than, um, what we teach in, um, in our 
suburban grade schools and high schools, right? It's, it's sort of a, a long view of history, the mythology. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what I'm doing now with the, like the Soul Star program. So I got called to do a, um, a feasibility study by one of my salesmen because um, he had uh, made a deal with the Red Lake um, Nation up in northern Minnesota. Um, feasibility, okay, how much solar could we fit on the roofs of 10 of our you know, tri um, public buildings? Um, how much of the load would that pick off? Um, you know, the kind of thing that we typically do when we're selling a commercial industrial system um, in the solar industry. And this was for an Indian tribe, however, a Native American tribe. And by the way, the word Indian, um, I don't like to use very much, although they officially are known as the the Red Lake Band of Chippewa Indians. And so they've um, confused the issue by using it in what they call themselves. And uh, and typically the driver, you know, for um, a business, a sale of a, a system is, um, okay, how much money is it going to save us? And, uh, you know, how long will it take to pay back? You know, where, when are we going to hit break even for spending our money? Red Lake, on the other hand, taught me something about um, Native values. Um, because their driver is that uh, they have a commercial fishery in Red Lake. They sell walleye all over the Midwest to restaurants and in some stores. And there's a slow buildup of mercury in the water because of the burning of coal mm. out west, which they have no control over. And so what, uh, what they want to do is to um, exert some control in shutting down those coal plants. And, and save their fishery. And so by um, going solar, their calculation is not um, how much money are we going to save and what's the payback? The payback is saving the fishery. Now, if more people would think that way about the planet we live on and, and less about their pocketbook, um, we'd probably have, uh, let's say, some different directions the solar industry would be going in and maybe better relationships between utilities and um, and the solar industry, you know, in general, we had the problem of figuring out how to finance these corporate money, which was expected, did not show up. So I was at a conference at McAllister College and found out about crowdsourced uh, funding being used in some communities. Uh, I think the black community in South Detroit uh, and uh, a community in Atlanta, and. Um, where corporate money was not showing up at Red Lake as expected. So I talked with the chairman of the tribal council and um, we agreed that we'd try crowdsourced funding for Red Lake. And I hired a, an attorney who uh, has you know, been a leader in helping the solar community in Minnesota develop the suite of contracts for um, third-party financing over the last couple decades. And so we developed the model that would make it possible to use crowdsource funding for the debt side and then my equity to start the ball rolling to finance some of these things, the, you know, these 10 um, public buildings. So um, we got started and we're, we're working, we're actually just finishing up the second one now. And so what that's done is it's given some momentum. So now other conversations about um, how to raise uh, funds are showing up. And of course, there's money coming down from the F Department of Energy for solar on tribal lands, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but really, one of the things I've noticed in that process is that the, the Red Lake Nation itself needs an energy planning group, you know, in, in the community. 
so that they can actually move towards energy sovereignty so that they can as as these uh, systems that I'm financing and will eventually sell to them once I've used the tax credits can um, so that they will be in a position to uh, to know you know what to do with them how they can maybe um, develop um, um, a solar a, a municipal utility based on clean energy and this actually is how the uh, the tribe will be able to exert commu- uh, uh, influence a larger influence than just in its own community on surrounding communities and and tribal communities around the Midwest to make those coal plants out west unnecessary on a faster timeline. So um, really, it's the financing that I've always, you know, in in 30 years of being in business, I've always been sitting on the other side of the table from the underwriter and the finance, um, you know, the people who are going to get the loans or we're going to get the money together. And then I was totally dependent on on them, uh, whether we're going to have a project. Uh, But in this setting, I feel like I have a sense of agency in being able to, you know, start from nothing and um, put together a financing plan that I use as my um, my money in a, 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 a let's say a very uh, parsimonious way, um, so that I can extend it pretty far, and then it, it it passes along to the tribe a sense of agency to them in their own future, um, their energy future. So, so I think this has stimulated a lot of conversations about electric vehicles and you know the electric infrastructure, uh, how much they will use propane and uh, maybe going all electric. You know those kind of conversations that we're having um, elsewhere. I think are um, um, showing up up there now. Um, and so, in the Soul Star program, which is what we started talking about um, actually before the podcast started. Um, I'm taking that finance model and then adapting it um, for the black community in uh, North Minneapolis. And so the goal is to uh, create a, um, a portfolio of um, uh, um, residential and small commercial installations that, that creates enough of a market space for local contractors up there to get involved um, and, and get some interest in the different aspects of the solar industry um, so that we have uh, what you're calling solar as a platform for economic development. Wow. I love it. Uh, My brain's kind of, uh, kind of straining right now to try to understand how complicated all this must be and how much time it must take. I think, I think that's one of the, our shortcomings as a society, along with many other things, is we've got a really, um, we're very impatient. And it sounds like some of the projects that you're describing have taken years and years to to get traction and to start having an, yeah, making an they, impact. When, when we decided to stop waiting for the corporate money to show up uh, because of a tax scheme that really was, um, no, they no, nobody wanted to stick their neck out first, so nobody did. Um, the, the chairman uh, of the tribal council, when I talked with him, he said, well, while we're waiting to beach a whale, we might as well go catch a few fish. <laughs> I thought that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, you summed it up there, <laughs> my friend, you summed it up. Um, so the uh, the decision to, to do the crowdfunding um, meant 
basically going to my church community among the Quakers uh, and Unitarians and Presbyterians, you know, the, you know, church people who are, um, you know, interested in the solar and, and, uh, you know, racial justice. Well, I'm sure all are, but the ones that really uh, interfaith power and Minnesota interfaith power and light connects with a, a, a segment of those. So they've been my marketing partner, um, helping to get the conversations going. Uh, but it took a long time to get the the first little bit of uh, um, you know people willing to stick their neck out and say yeah yeah Ralph I'll I'll loan you some money um, and so my pay payback plan for them you know is something that I I will feel that the um, that the finance model is successful not when I've taken the money and built the project but when I've paid back the money and the project has been operating you know all the while. Mm. And then mm. having been able to sell it uh, to the tribe for uh, a discount that, that involves passing along the benefit of the uh, tax credits to the tribe in that sale so that then they will own the asset. And similarly, the homeowners in, 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 in the Soul Star program in North Minneapolis, after tax law allows, will own the asset. And uh, so building wealth Love it. in the community through home through the ownership of solar and you know the first pushback i got from somebody in north minneapolis was well but community solar makes it possible community solar gardens and subscriberships make it possible for um a wider variety of people to access solar um so why would you go down this road and i'm going well first of all um gee are you saying that white people can go down the road of ownership of solar but that black people shouldn't and immediately the the person that brought that up just said, no, 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 that, that's not what I meant. And I'm going, well, then can tell me why you wouldn't want to uh, build wealth in the black community through ownership of solar. And I think we, we kind of cleared that hurdle pretty quickly, you know, putting it in that light. Well, a lot of people don't understand community solar model, but I uh, kind of can quickly summarize it to say it's, you know, renting or subscribing to solar that you don't actually own or that's owned off-site. You have a share in, in a community garden, maybe, versus truly owning your own asset and building equity, which is the point that you were making. Subscribership was some a concept, I think, um, created, um, if not by the Minnesota legislator, legislature, then um, pretty pretty uh, um, soon before it was discussed at the legislature, because it's a new relationship you know, where the, the person does put money in, but they don't, uh, they're not buying ownership. They're, they're buying the, they're actually paying back um, the third party who has purchased the system itself. And so they're on a payment plan by subscribing. Um, so it's a three-way deal by subscribing, uh, by, by paying the owner of the system they're getting uh, the benefit of uh, a credit on their their utility bill. Yeah. Well, at the risk of avoiding going down a solar project finance rabbit hole, I want to steer us back towards the theme of uh, that we started with about solar for all and and issues of equity and class and justice. And um, thank you for for your your work that you've done, and also for being vulnerable here, and you know, coming on the show not to brag about how great you are and how many super successes you've had, but uh, I think we started the conversation with you talking about 
what didn't go as well as you thought, even despite your best intended, uh, you know, your, your, well, your good intentions. Um, uh, thanks for being vulnerable, Ralph. And, and thanks for um, sharing your kind of accumulated wisdom and experiences with our, our listeners. I'm hoping that there's folks out there that are going to be inspired by this and that, that might think, hey, wait, we could crowdfund for this. Uh, crowdfunding's gotten that much more uh, mainstream and more, you know, it feels more safe to a lot of people. There's, there's platforms for it, et cetera. We're, we're seeing some crowdfunding uh, helping to make some projects in low-income communities happen. Um, so this has been super, we're going to shift it over to the, the, the solar for all better together section of the pod. Um, and this is a place where our guests can share wisdom and, and ideas with our listeners. Uh, the first subject is, uh, basically the note and promote where you can talk about a book or an author that, uh, you're, you're excited about and why I, I, <laughs> I read a lot, so it's kind of hard to, um, where it narrow it down, but um, I think uh, two books that come to mind: A Native History of the United States. Maybe it's a Native People's History of the United States um, by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, who's a Native historian. Um, it's kind of hard to read because um, uh, she chronicles a lot of the really crummy things that that uh, um, European Americans have done. Um, to Native Americans over the years. But I think that um, it's good to know your history. Mm-hmm. Anybody that really wants to understand um, what the, the, some of the foundational things or the, some of the foundation for what's going on today and how decisions are made about um, uh, life and, let's say, solar potential in, in Native communities, um, that, that would be a good book to read. Um, another one um, that I uh, is a personal favorite is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, a uh, black author. Um, really uh, helped me understand uh, what a black um, man you know, growing up in the 20th century struggles with uh, in terms of, you know, being the whole person. And recognized for being a whole person. Right. Rather than being defined primarily or first and foremost by yep. the color of their skin. And and I think I think that if I had read that before I went, uh, I started hiring people from the black community I, I, and then shared that with with my staff, um, we would have had probably a different outcome. That's great. Knowledge is power. And those are two powerful books. Uh, we've had links to them in the show notes. Um, and then how about a piece of advice or wisdom that you would like to pass along to our listeners, Ralph? Well, um, this is, if, if your listeners um, here are, are primarily people in the solar community, I would say that um, my my take on you know especially when we get into um, adding energy storage to extend the um, usefulness of solar, we really need to learn the language of capacity planning that utility engineers use. We'd have much better conversations, um, and we would understand a lot more about how utilities think, and be able to engage in in joint energy planning, which I think is what we'd have to we, where we have to go. 
we're going to get in another deep dive down the rabbit hole, but this is great. I, I'd never really thought about the kind of cross-cultural issues involved in interacting between the solar folks and the utility planning community that have kind of co evolved on separate tracks and almost on separate planets. Um, and, and, and you're right, uh, capacity planning and um, instantaneous power or KW is the driver, not KWH, which is what you and I primarily focus on, you know, more at the homeowner level than on the CNI level. Well, let's lighten it up a little bit and uh, we'll go to the uh, Better Together One Plus One playlist. And this is for all you digital streaming music listeners out there. This is on Spotify, Pandora, and Apple. Uh, give us two songs. If you can, you narrowed it down to two books. Let's narrow it down to two songs. One that's an old classic and something, maybe something new that's uh, well, popped an into old your classic. ears lately. Um, let's say there, there was a group of people that I think started out in Massachusetts, but they were, you know, this is in the 1970s. You know, they were wearing the bright tie-dye t-shirts and, you know, they were, yeah, right. On the peace sign, um, called Bright Morning Star. I think they might have started out in Vermont or Massachusetts. Um, they came through St. Paul and uh, stayed at our commune, actually, so I got to know them a little bit. Um, but they had a song that I, I hear every now and then called The Solar Anthem. I bet you'll find it if you um, <laughs> dig a little bit on YouTube. No, this is great. This is yeah. great. Well, that's that's your classic. How about something fresh and new? What's uh, what's the latest uh, thing you're? I know. I'll think of something ten minutes from now after we've hung up. And doggone it, where I can I think of it now? Uh, no worries. You, you gave us two books when I asked for one, so we'll give you a buy on the two songs part of it. Sounds good. We'll 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 retrofit it. Um, at the end of the day, though, this has been a delightful podcast, Ralph, and I appreciate you and, and everything that you're doing for solar and as well as just for people, for humanity and for your. Yeah, I, I tell you what, to substitute for that song, I would like to substitute another book, Ages of Gaia by James Lovelock. It's uh, basically as an atmospheric scientist, he pays, he chronicles the development of the atmosphere of planet Earth and the chemical processes and the amazing interaction between life on Earth and thermodynamics of a planet. Um, and it's important to know that stuff as we move into an age of climate chaos. Yeah, sadly, sadly enough, those old truths that pretty much describe the miracle of, of this rock in space that can support life uh, are also the same truths that we need to know about as we navigate the, the big changes that we're involved in now. We'll take a third book instead of two songs. And uh, thank you, Ralph, and, and thanks to our listeners. Uh, if you like this content and want to spread the word, please not only subscribe, but ask your friends and others that would be interested in this pod to subscribe. Uh, share us on your socials, on LinkedIn. And remember, you can find show notes for this uh, episode as well as all the other episodes at www.solarforall.show. Thank you to our sponsor, Third Sun Solar. And if we are going to be successful in the fight against climate change, we are going to need everyone on the team. And uh, this uh, podcast is focused on 
building those bridges and learning those lessons together as we build uh, a brighter tomorrow.